This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. listening to the New Yorker Poetry Podcast. I'm Paul Muldoon, the poetry editor of the magazine, and it's a pleasure to have you with us today. On this programme, we invite a poet to choose a poem from the great New Yorker archive. We discuss it. Then we ask him, uh, in this case, to read one of his own poems that's been published in the magazine. And I'm delighted to say that our guest today is Andrew Motion, distinguished poet, the winner of the Dylan Thomas Prize, so many other prizes, a former poet laureate of the United Kingdom, knighted indeed for his contributions to, to bringing poetry to the people Sir Andrew Motion. You're very welcome here. I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you. The poem you've chosen to read today is by Alice Oswald. Alice Oswald's evening poem. Now, Alice Oswald uh, is a poet for whom you have uh, a particular regard. I do. I mean, I think for my money, she's one of the best around of the generation younger than ours, yours and mine, Um, for lots of reasons, but two perhaps are worth mentioning immediately. One is that it's to do with subjects. She's very good at writing about a notoriously difficult subject because it lures everybody so quickly, generally speaking, into sententiousness, which is to say the environment mm-hmm. and what's happening to the, the physical world. She's written a lot about the fragility of the world that we live in, not necessarily in an overtly political way, um, engaging with conservation themes and such like, but just by looking at it very closely and I think very accurately, very freshly so that, like other people who've looked at things very closely before her, John Clare, I'm thinking of as I'm saying this, you get, reading her poems, a a revived sense of the beauty of things and through the contemplation of the beauty of things, of the the precariousness of things. Mm -hmm. So I admire her very much for that reason. And the other thing that I particularly like about her, and it is true of this poem, what I'm about to say, as well as this poem's concerned with environmental matters. She's reminding us a lot in her poems, the way she arranges her poem on the page, of how crucial it is to make breath a part of structure. Um, This is, by and large, an unpunctuated poem. In fact, it's a totally unpunctuated poem in terms of full stops and commas and such like. But it's punctuated by stanza breaks and line breaks and having a lot of space around certain words and phrases. So that it's, it's impossible, I think, to read this poem even when we're reading it silently, without feeling that, without feeling engaged in some sort of physical activity, because it's asking us to pause, breathe, and in a sense sculpt the poem around our own breathing or allow 
the sculpture of the poems to dictate our breathing or both. Well, we should listen to it, I think, particularly uh, since you've made those observations about it. And it will instruct you, I suppose, in some sense in how it wants to be in the world. I hope so, yes. I mean, I'll give it my shot. I don't mean to say this is the only way to to read it. But as you embark on reading a poem, Andrew Motion, in general, do you feel that you must do your best by it, that it will in some way will, will tell you what it wants to do? The good ones do, I think. I, well, not so much telling me, but reading me. I mean, in other words, my reading of it is a two-way process. I feel read by it, I feel examined by it, I feel asked questions by it. And part of the asking of those questions involves being invited to make certain decisions about speed, about deployment of voice, let alone about interpreting what on earth it, it means. Evening Poem by Alice Oswald. Old scrap iron foxgloves, rusty rods of the broken woods, what a faded, knocked-out stiffness, as if you'd sprung from the horsehair of a whole Victorian sofa, buried in the mud down there. Or at any rate, something, dropped from a great height, straight through flesh and out the other side, has left your casing pale and loose and finally just a heap of shoes. They say the gods, being so uplifted, can't really walk on feet, but take tottering steps and lean like this closer and closer to the ground. Which gods? It is the hours on bird-thin legs, the same old choirs of hours returning their summer clothes to the earth, with the night now, as if dropped from a great height, falling I hear in this poem, and in a lot of her poems, two other voices, not in a way which compromises her voice, I think, but which inform it in all kinds of interesting ways. One is Samuel Beckett. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we can hear, particularly towards the end of that poem, something of the openness that Beckett has in his own poems, let alone in the plays. Um, and the other is Ted Hughes. Alice Oswald lives down in Devon, near to where Ted Hughes spent the last part of his life and admires him very much. She's edited a selection of his poems. Um, my own feeling is that there's a particular run of Hughes's poetry which has influenced her cadencing, and it's the poems in and around the period of his writing Wadwell, especially the title poem of that book, actually, an unpunctuated poem like this one, a poem which is very interested in using absolutely ordinary words and ordinary means of imposing emphasis, like the word using the word very, for instance, which is a big word for her, too, in conjunction with slightly less usual, less familiar kinds of diction. And actually the punctuation, the only bit of punctuation in this poem is the question mark on That's which, right. which gods, which yes. is not unreminiscent, let's put it like that, of the end of Wadworth. I hear that. I hear Wadworth very strongly in this poem, actually. But as I say, I don't, I don't want to make that point in a way which somehow diminishes this poem, but simply to show that it has roots, this poem, and they are, f for me, interestingly, in... In well, I think that's always a risk, isn't it? I mean, Hughes is uh, such a, what would one say, an insidious force. <laughs> right. He's an insidious force. Yes. I mean, brilliant. 
I mean, there in the old scrap iron fox gloves. I mean, the fox is there. Absolutely. The thistles, his great Indeed. poem, The Thistles, Indeed. is lying behind yeah. this. Which also appears in the volume Odwo, I think, originally, doesn't it? I think it does. So it comes from that That's period. right. And it's a risky business. Right. And uh, I suppose... Uh, the question is, and I think we've heard your answer, is the question is, on balance, does she manage to be influenced by Ted Hughes but it simultaneously to escape the influence? Well, yes, for me she does. And I, I don't worry very much, provided I feel somebody is authentic. I, it doesn't bother me very much hearing other the noises of other poets in their work. I mean, if we look sideways from what we're saying about Alice Oswald and think about somebody else who's probably in her cosmology, Edward Thomas. Right. Edward Thomas seems to be a poet who's writing poems that are as fresh as the day that they're written on. Um, I always think reading his poems is that if I look down, I'm going to see dew on my toe caps, you know, because I've just come in from going for a walk with him and the walk is the poem. But if you hold his poems up in a certain light, you can see that they're absolutely chock-a-block with allusions to other poets, romantic poets in particular, Wordsworth, of the romantic poets especially. Mm-hmm. That great word that William Hazlitt uses of echoings and borrowings, the word cento mm-hmm. comes to mind as I'm saying this. So evening poem is a kind of cento too, I think. A cento in this sense meaning something that's made up of many pieces, perhaps even... Allusions, hundred. echoes. Yes. yes. And made of made up of... Uh, it's like a patchwork it, it quilt. Is a, it is a sort yes. of patchwork quilt, mm-hmm. exactly. But with this thing to add about Alice, which is that she's a woman, and I think one of the ways in which her poems achieve their authenticity is by taking these tropes and cadences that we associate in particular with a very male voice, Ted Hughes's voice. He, Ted Hughes, often uses in his poems to wrestle with, even dominate, the the subjects that he's writing about. She Mm -hmm. seems much more and I'm aware of all the sort of dangers of stereotyping that I'm courting as I'm saying this, but she seems much more tentative, do I want to say about it? Mm-hmm. Um, something like that, anyway. Mm-hmm. It's not quite the word that I'm looking for, but as we look at this poem in more detail, we can see that it's, it's got quite a lot of self-corrections and either-ors and such like in it. In other words, it doesn't come at the subject like a bullet a gate. Well, in that sense, of course, she's influenced by a poet whom we've often discussed in the podcast, a poet who casts you know, a very long shadow over over contemporary uh, writing. I think I know who you're going to say. It wouldn't be E.B. <laughs> yes, it is E.B., <laughs> exactly. It absolutely is Elizabeth Bishop. That sense of a mind changing direction as it, as it moves. Yes, the corrective. Quite, yes. And we get a little bit of that here. I mean, just one thing that does intrigue me about this poem, having mentioned the romantics, is that falling from a great height straight through flesh and out the other side has left your casing pale and loose and finally pale mm. and wandering. Yes. Um, in other words, Keats is somewhere in the background of this. Palely thing. loitering. Yes, exactly. They're loitering. But it's sort of in our... She puts it that in our mind, doesn't she? There are little sort of Keatsian glimpses, I think, in the poem. 
there are. You know, let me just ask you, uh, Andrew, uh, about John Keats, a poet for whom you have a particular yes, I regard do. and have written so brilliantly about him. Let me just take a quotation from yourself here. My poems are the product of a relationship between a side of my mind which is conscious, alert, educated and manipulative and a side which is as murky as a primeval swamp which in a way is a is a, a remaking uh, of, of, of Keats's is, great yes. description of um, negative capability. Right. Uh, but the idea of negative capability is one, I think, which, you know, which, insofar as I would prescribe anything, should be ingrained in our hearts. So do I think that. I mean, for me, encountering that concept, that idea, which I suppose I first did when I was a teenager, was probably the absolutely formative thing for me. The idea that you are capable of, or that you might be capable of subduing your own personality, of writing a sort of un-egotistical sublime, courting an un-egotistical sublime in the interest of doing justice to your subject, seems to me an ideal. And I've, I have spent all my life really trying to find ways of doing that. It, it looks to that great remark of his at various other linked ideas that he trails through the letters and I suppose were in his conversation as well, particularly the idea of what William Collis Williams called there being no truth but in things. Mm-hmm. No ideas but uh, in I things. Beg, I beg, beg, beg your pardon, no, yes, no, no, no idea but in things. No, no, no. Um, so I think that takes us back or comes from, takes us back to and comes from the idea that we write best often when we're not wagging our finger at our reader, not telling him or her what to think, but simply allowing our faithfulness to the subjects to do our thinking for us. And when we don't know what we're doing. And when we don't know what we're doing, exactly. And that doesn't mean, of course, that one may not address uh, an issue, a question or whatever, a subject matter, not that one necessarily at all ever sits down thinking my subject matter today is, my text for today is. But I'm thinking of of your own poem that uh, we we would love to hear you read today. It's a poem that is not unconnected to the Alice Oswald poem. Mm. I think particularly of your mention of Edward Thomas, who right. I know is one of your, your great heroes, yes. who who appears here in some way, I think, perhaps in the, the nettles even yes. in the poem. <laughs> well, you can't, if you love Thomas, you can't write the word nettles without thinking of him, that's for sure. Well, you know, that's an interesting thought, isn't it? I mean, is it possible? I suppose there are still those who are indeed, th- those who are interested in poetry, who... Actually, I might have no idea what we're talking about. What are we talking about? We're talking about a short, very beautiful poem by Edward Thomas called Nettles, which just has a good hard look, um, hard but glancing look, if I could put it like that, at some nettles growing in the corner of a farmyard, which have been covered in dust, thrown up uh, by work in the farmyard, and a little shower of rain has washed the dust off their leaves. And it's, it's as if they're, they're there to prove the sweetness yes, of, of a shower. Exactly, uh-huh. yes. You know, this is a poem that, uh, of course, is about various aspects of your own family life. It is. It's a, I moved from London, England, to live in Baltimore, where I now live, to teach at Johns Hopkins a, a little under two years ago. And I found myself... I wonder whether you did when you came to live in America. I find myself doing two almost opposite things simultaneously. One was to 
want to engage with things that were happening in my, my here and now, to write about Baltimore, to write about what I could see out of my window, to write about dailiness. But without expecting to, I also find myself looking over my shoulder back at not so much the recent past, my recent past in England, but my, my childhood, my early days there, as though I was in an almost involuntary way, though I was pleased to do it, thinking, where do I come from, who am I, in a sort of revitalised way. I mean, I've, I've tried to write such poems before. I mean, that actually is one of the things that most poets might be said to do most of the time. Indeed. But I, I think if you move out of your realm, yeah. as it were, yes. so, so dramatically... Uh, I mean, it's bi- the idea this is bound to be thrown into some kind of new relief. Very much so for me. I mean, I, I wonder whether it w- was, is for you too. I mean, you've been here much longer than I have. Well, I've been here for 30 years, but yeah. I, it's, I think it's always a question, you know, which, what, which language is one speaking, for example? Indeed. Which language are you speaking? Which way are you looking? I felt like a tree that had been uprooted and my roots were kind of writhing around in the air trying to get hold of something. I mean, they've got a firmer grip on Baltimore now than they had to start with. But I still find myself wanting to reconnect with my distant past. In particular, what I tried to do in this poem, actually, to be honest, I didn't realise I was doing it until I was about halfway through and then I became a bit more conscious of it, was Mm. to write it in a voice which partakes in some way of the subject, which is to say that it has a slightly... 19th century feel to it. It's set in a 19th century house that was built during the 19th century. They're sonnets, they're unrhymed sonnets. I mean, there's quite a lot of rhyming goes on in them, but not in a, 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 at all in a strict way. They're very regularly iambic, generally speaking. And that was, and as I say, I became more aware of this as I went on, part of wanting to try and stabilize myself in, a, in what was definitely the past, um, so that as it Elsewhere, outside this particular poem, I might feel grounded enough to engage with my new life. You know, one of the other poets, we don't necessarily have to linger over the notion of influence, but as, as we were suggesting no, I, earlier I like on talking about this. with Alice uh, Oswald, you know, it's no, no one springs fully formed from their own bra. Certainly not. And, you know, we mentioned Edward Thomas. The other poet I think of here, and, and again in a, in, a, in a very ameliorative sense, I think of him fondly when I, when I read this poem, is Philip Larkin. Yes. And I know Philip Larkin, of course, was a, also a great... Uh, you wrote a book about Philip yeah. Larkin. You were a colleague of Philip I Larkin. Was. And, you know, Larkin, for me, um, is probably the single great... Uh, stanza merchant, as it were. (laughs) (laughs) The stanza, you can imagine him in in one of those old hotels that he writes about, you know, selling selling stanzas. (laughs) But in any case, um, you know, I do think that um, the spirit of Larkin is hanging about this also. Would that be inappropriate? It would be very weird if he didn't hang around me. I spent, he was a very close friend for the last 10 or so years of his life. Um, almost immediately after his death, I started writing his biography. I'm one of his literary executors. Yes. I spent seven years living with him every day, which is a good deal longer than anybody else managed to live with him. Admittedly, <laughs> <laughs> he was dead in, when I was doing that. But nevertheless, he was very present in my life. There were ways in which I felt very drawn to and sympathetic to him poetically. We tended to like the same people. Husband Christina Rossetti, 
Hardy, Edward Thomas indeed, etc. Politically and in various other ways, we were miles apart. So there were quite a lot of big holes in our friendship. But I still read his poems. In fact, possibly I even more, as I get older, read his poems and think not only that's very beautiful, but also it's true. And there aren't very many poets that I feel that about. I'm not so conscious often when I'm reading other poets than when I'm reading him. Some I am, but not, it's not a common thing for me to feel this. That is, as it were, morally or experientially true. Right. I might think, that's it. I recognise that. That feels true in a sort of true-to-life way. But there's that very odd sense in his poems of how they aspire to the, to the condition of epigram. Um, we're being invited, in other words, as we follow the poem through, to reach a conclusion about something with him in a rather 18th century way, actually. I mean, it's not something that contemporary poets do very much. Let me ask you a question about that. One of the features of many, many epigrams is the fact that they find their way into the world as rhyming couplets. Indeed. Now, here's a strange question for you, and then we'll hear this poem because I think our reader, our listeners are going to be sufficiently tantalised now. <laughs> we think, what, is, what, <laughs> what, are the they, going on? what are they talking about? <laughs> but here's the thing. Did you make a conscious decision or... To not not to write this in rhyming lines? Yes, I did, I think. Tell us about that. I love writing formally rhyming poems, and quite often do. Mm-hmm. I wanted something a little bit more open. I didn't want to draw attention to... I mean, I don't mean to say that forms always do draw attention to themselves, but I didn't want there to be any question of my drawing attention to the, yes. the form. Yes, I mean... <laughs> The couplet in particular, mm. I mean, it's so hard to use Incredibly without difficult. being glib yeah. or, I and mean... the sense of boxes shutting and... Yes, which I don't terribly like. difficult. It's not impossible, but extremely difficult. Having said that, of course, mm. what's even more difficult is perhaps to write free verse. Well, I know, I know. Um, anyway, for whatever reason, I, I wanted a sense of sort of openness about this right. uh, flow. You know, let's get to it because um, sure. our, our listeners will be wondering, yes, uh, be as wa- I say, what is, are they talking about? <laughs> and this is Waders, uh, written and read by Andrew Motion. Waders. After the accident, when summer brings slow afternoons with nothing left to do, I take what used to be your garden chair and park it underneath the wayward ash that sidles forward where the garden swerves and hides the house from view. In secret, then, I conjure up the notebook I have found among your bedside things and open it. Blank pages. Thoughts you never had or had but could not bring yourself to say. Should I imagine them? or write my own instead. I close my eyes and scrutinise the white that also lies inside me while the ash rattles its pale green keys above my head. The milk float with its thin mosquito whine straining through larch and elder from the lane. The nervous bottles in their metal basket intent on music but without a tune. The milkman in his doctor's stubby coat and sailor's rakish dark blue canvas cap are all invisible, imagined, dreamed, beyond my curtains in the early light, along with tissue footprints in the frost, are rinsed out empties 
and the rolled-up note exchanged for bottles with their silver tops. The sparrows have already broken through to sip the stiffened plugs of cream before we come downstairs and bring our order in. To think the world is endless, prodigal, to part the hedgerow leaves and see the eggs like planets in a crowded galaxy, to hear my mother's voice advising me the mother bird herself will never mind if I take only one and leave the rest, means nothing more than showing interest, as does the careful slow walk home, the ritual of pinpricks through both ends, the steady breath that blows the yoke and albumen clean out, but keeps the pretty shell intact, the nest of crumpled paper in the cedar drawer, the darkness falling then, the hush, and me bringing the weight of my warm mind to bear. Beyond the grazing and the bramble bank, where on another day I might lie down and press my ear against the trampled earth to hear the rabbits scuffling underground. A headland round the ash grove leads me on past wheat fields which still show the buffeting of last night's storm towards the Blackwater. The stream has long since burst inside my head. The banks collapsed, the water meadows drowned, the mesh of overhanging branches bowed with plastic voodoo junk and hanks of wool. Then I arrive and see things as they are, a settled surface with a clearing sky and shining gravel drifting inside clouds. My father, with no explanation, stays behind at home. My mother drives away and takes me with her to the Suffolk coast, where I lie down all day on rounded stones and will the sun to thaw my frozen brain, while she... I've no idea what she does until the evening she manhandles me to stand beside her in the cypress shade, which makes a double darkness on the lawn, and watch the round moon roll into our sky, as Neil Armstrong takes his one small step and pokes his flag into the silver dust, although we cannot see him, nor he us, except in ways I think my father might. Before the time they used my room to store apples collected from those crooked trees, now wading waist-deep at the garden end in frilly, white-capped waves of cow parsley, and laid them out in rows not touching quite. I know all this because the floorboards show wherever they had missed one as it turned to mush and left a round stain on the wood. My bed stands over them, and when at night... My eyes grow used to darkness, they appear. The Coxes, Bramleys, Blenheim Oranges, whose names alone can fill the empty air with branches weighted down by next year's crop and turn its scent half sickly and half sweet. That lead tank, like a coffin with no lid, lying between the cooler greenhouse room my mother uses for her cuttings trays and one as steamy as the rainforest, with air so thickened by tomato plants, it lies like moist green velvet on my tongue. That lead tank, that disgusting, almost, store of syrupy black water is where Kit, my brother, slipped, 
or through himself to see if that would make our father like him more, and where, as I look down to see myself alive and sensible, I envy him his moment in a time outside our time, free from the earth and all its appetites. The low tent tunnel of the laurel walk, where no one but a child can stand today, encloses me, but keeps the world in view, in sudden supple leaps and starts of light. Here out of sight I wait to meet myself, with no idea of what myself might be. I drink the musty air and bide my time. I shake the sullen shadows from my head. I feel the deep earth rising in my bones. I make believe the shivering small flies beside me on the leaves, the sparrow gang that flusters in its shallow bowl of dust. Suppose that I want nothing more from them except to stay here and not mean a thing. I try my father's waders on for size, then take, with him encouraging, his rod and wading stick, his canvas bag, his cap rigid beneath its crown of favourite flies, and step into the river. From the bank, he says I look like him. As for myself, I only think of how to stand upright with water hardening one second round my ankles and the next uprooting me as though I have no purchase on the world. My father shouts, Don't fight it! I obey. I let the deluge settle round my heart, then lay me on my back and carry me round the long sweep beyond my father's sight. Those roofless kennels where the nettles shake their fine-haired leaves and tiny bright green buds. That almost buried path of blood-red bricks confined both sides by tiles shaped like rope. The ruined square of cracked, disrupted blocks where once a summer house had turned and stared. These are the former glories of the house. Although I like their fall and brokenness, much more than grieving for a time I missed. As also I like walking with the ghosts that wander through the garden everywhere, the mother and her son, whose footprints leave no prints beside us in the grass, as though ourselves are all the company we keep. Andrew Motion reading... Waders, great meditation on uh, that part of your life that you've written about, parts of which you've written about already so memorably in In the Blood, a memoir of my childhood. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead, Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. 
Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Do you feel, this is a rather bold question perhaps, do you feel that there's plenty more to go back to there? I mean, it's a rather, this is a rather naughty question, no, I suppose. it's a nice question. Yeah, I mean, it's one I would of... love to ask you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, here's the thing. I mean, po- I suppose poets are determined on one hand to do something that they haven't done before. Indeed. And yet there's a lot of evidence to suggest that we're doomed to do pretty much what we did yeah. before. And I suppose on balance that's just how it is. That's that's what that's what we're looking at. I think that's absolutely right. It's certainly true for me that I feel pretty relaxed about the idea that I'm obsessed by these early days. I'm conscious of sometimes actually rootling through, shuffling the pack of memories that I have to see whether new cards will, as it were, drop out of it that I might then find a subject for poems. I mean, in that respect, whether one's a poet or not, uh, an ordinary citizen, as it were, mm. uh, you know, one of, our, one of the things we have to do is, and one of the things that we're all in some way obliged to do, is to figure out what happened to us yeah, back quite. then. Exactly. Right? Whatever exactly. What happened to us. Larkin, since we were mentioning, said something absolutely extraordinary somewhere in a review, I think, as well as in conversation, and I have some memories of him saying this myself, which is that when he was reading the biography of a writer, however interested he was in the writer, he'd speed through the early pages because he just wasn't interested in their childhood. That seems to me to risk missing out the things which describe, define, are the template of that person's personality. I don't mean to say that we can't, in some sense, alter ourselves, mature, grow up, even set off in new directions when we're older. But I pretty much firmly believe in the idea that we are set in some way. We are imprinted very, very, very early on. I was imprinted by growing up in the countryside, as I think you did too. Um, I've lived most of my adult life in towns, almost all my adult life in towns. I'm struck by how extremely little I've written about living in cities. Um, It's as though my eye is really not quite only attuned, but much better attuned, much better focused, capable of focusing on countryside things than it is on urban things. Certain patterns of behavior that I noticed in my parents, sets of feelings that I had around my parents, um, they were all... I, I can't change them. They are absolutely the foundation of my writing. So I do go back a lot to early stuff and, and write about it. And exactly as you say, the effort is not just to exercise some curiosity about about it in general terms, but to try and work out who on earth we are. What happened? I don't suppose that any uh, practicing psychotherapist would disagree. No, indeed. <laughs> well, for good reason. <laughs> Now, let me ask you a question about, uh, if I may, uh, I could talk to you for a long time, Andrew Motion, but let me ask you a question about that's in some way related to what we've just been talking about, the the point mm. at which public and private intersect. Yeah. And, um, you know, you had the great uh, distinction uh, of being, along with Ted Hughes, of course, of being a poet laureate 
um, of um, the UK. Oh, you know, as I think about it, uh, I remember when Ted Hughes was Poet Laureate, the dreadful um, press he got, the kind of constant sniping and whining (laughs) about this, that and the other. And I mean, it's just one of those jobs that really... You know, one needs to be pretty tough, I think, to take yes, it on. Did you find that? My God, yes. And, of course, it's not only Ted who said that. I mean, I was, for other reasons, looking at Betjeman's letters mm-hmm. not so long ago, and he, who was laureate, I think, not immediately before Ted, but sometime before Ted. Mm-hmm. And, um, and he complains bitterly about exactly the sort of thing that you've just described. Well, the difference between me and any of my predecessors was that I said that I would do it for 10 years, so I, I, I could see the exit sign. I'm supposing I was still alive to go through it, and there were days when I wondered whether I would actually get that far. Um, I did it because I thought that I could do something with the position, and I spent a lot of time running around the place talking about poetry, thousands probably of school visits. I did a lot of stuff on the radio, as it were, for poetry, I set up the Poetry Archive, um, which is an online collection of poets reading their own work, that now has a quarter of a million people using it every month. So that that was a good thing to do, and it was a thing that I wouldn't have been able to do had I not been laureate, because I wouldn't have been able to raise the money to set it up. So in practical terms, I felt that it was well worth doing. There was a job to do for poetry, that job, though, was very exhausting, and I felt that it was very bad for my own writing, partly because it was taking a lot of t- time and meant that I, every time I sat down at my desk to write a poem, I was being feeling, right, I've got two hours to do this in, and then I've got to go and do such and such a thing, which is no way to live as a writer. There were other kinds of insidious pressure as a writer, too, mainly to do with the feeling that, because it involved quite a lot of commissioned work, that you had to go in in order to fulfil the commission in the way that the commissioning person wanted it to be fulfilled, you, in some sense, had to go in through the front door of the subject all the time. And I'm not a great believer in that. I think it's a much better idea to think of how you might get in through the window or down the chimney or around the back door or mm-hmm. tell all the truth but tell it slant, Emily Dickinson famously says, and that seems to me good advice, but advice that's difficult to square with writing poetry in a public position such as the laureate is. And then there's the press, as you say, who are kind of constantly on your case moaning and groaning about pretty much everything you do. I think that in England particularly, there is respect for poetry. We are the country of Shakespeare, etc. There Mm -hmm. is respect for poetry. But there's much more respect for dead poets than there is for living ones. Just extend that a little bit and ask you about the extent to which the poet, laureate or not, the poet seems to be required uh, by society, a society that more often than not shuns her, Mm. uh, to nonetheless step up and eat that stuff and actually come up with something, uh, some ideas about how to live publicly. It's a a bit of a bind, that, I think. I think so. I mean, I found it so much so, in fact, that even though I was, I'm overall... I think, glad that I did it because it allowed things to happen that I think were worthwhile. The personal cost was extremely high for me and I was almost inexpressibly relieved to give it up. And to give it up and move here quite soon afterwards, move to the United States quite soon afterwards um, with my born-in-American wife 
and become close to anonymous. I mean, my students know who I am. But to, to lose all that baggage, which I would have found impossible to do. Well, let me ask you a question about that. And, um, you know, I, I hesitate from asking it, but we live at a time where perhaps many of us feel that we may have to become more public in our utterances. I mean, um, is, is it possible that you've gone from what used to be called the frying pan into the whatever? <laughs> well, possibly. But that's now up to me, isn't it? And I didn't feel it was up to me right. quite when I was laureate. Right. I felt that having signed on the dotted line to do it, that was what I'd agreed to do. And I must go and do it as well as I could and etc. But here, particularly living in Baltimore, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound as I don't mean to sound as I say this, but nobody knows who the hell I am, and I absolutely love that. I was so busy during that 10 years of laureating that if I never, if I can continue in this much more nearly anonymous life for the rest of my existence, I will be very content. It's extremely difficult to look at things when you feel looked at. That's what it came down to for me. I hope I did manage to do some good things with it, but I was very pleased to give it up. Listen, I am far from pleased to have to give up our conversation. Oh, me too. <laughs> and I just want to say that Evening Poem by Alice Oswald, as well as Andrew Motion's poem, Waiters, will be found on newyorker.com. Alice Oswald's latest book of poems is Falling Awake. Andrew Motion's most recent um, individual collection is Peace Talks, but his selected poems, 1975 to 2015, is coming out in early 2017. Uh, Andrew Motion, it's been a real delight to have you here in the studio for the podcast. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much, Paul. It's been lovely talking to you. And I hope that total anonymity is not actually what you're going to enjoy. <laughs> we'll see. You can subscribe to this podcast and other free New Yorker podcasts in the iTunes store. You can hear more poetry read by the authors in newyorker.com and on the digital edition for tablets and phones at no extra charge from the App Store or from Google Play. The theme music is The Pintigree Ferryman from the album The Highlander's Farewell by Alastair Fraser and Natalie Ross from Colburny Records. The New Yorker Poetry Podcast was produced by Jill Duboff of NewYorker.com with help from Elizabeth Dennison. I'm David Remnick, host of the New Yorker Radio Hour. There's nothing like finding a story you can really sink into that lets you tune out the noise and focus on what matters. In print or here on the podcast, The New Yorker brings you thoughtfulness and depth and even humor that you can't find anywhere else. So please join me every week for The New Yorker Radio Hour, wherever you listen to podcasts.